0: Welcome to Base Liberty, your source for politics. The government is way too big, way too intrusive, we are overtaxed. History. The right to self-defense is a natural, God-given right, the founders clearly understood this. Economics. We can't just keep printing off money, we can't just keep borrowing money. If you think this path is sustainable, then I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. And more. From a Liberty perspective. I've got to disagree with you there, the income tax is clearly immoral. Because it assumes you don't own the fruit of your labor, the government With your host, Darren Wisely. Deregulation and decentralization are the answers if we're ever going to get this thing back on track. We need to look to families, churches, and charities, not the state. Welcome to Base Liberty Episode 10, where we are debunking myths and propaganda. Darren Wisely here. Today is Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. And I hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. I hope you had the opportunity to spend some time with your family, maybe you grilled out, or I hope you at least got a little leisure time to do what you want. I know I had a great time. I managed to get to the golf course with my boy Zach, and it was mid-high 70s, not a cloud in the sky here in Southern Michigan, slight breeze, but not too much, and we just had a blast, and I'm really grateful uh, for that opportunity. But I didn't slough off all weekend. I'm actually recording this episode on Labor Day because I wanted to give you guys uh, something to start your week off with the morning commute, and this topic is going to be really relevant in light of the Labor Day holiday. So speaking of Labor Day, aren't you so thankful for labor unions and labor laws? I mean, without them, children would be working for a penny a day in a sweatshop 100 hours a week. You'd probably risk arm and leg every day at your job in miserable conditions, no weekends. Meanwhile, these greedy owners are stuffing their pockets, getting fat, going home, swimming in a pool of money, just like Scrooge McDuck. Well, if you're like me and pretty much all Americans, that's the narrative you heard about the labor movement and what life was like uh, before pretty much the 1930s in the United States. Because the labor movement is really dying, at least in terms of private sector union influence, there isn't um, a lot of debate on these issues, and people on the other side really aren't willing to stick their neck out on it. But I wanted to come in here and give the other side to that, because... Pretty much everyone going through the education system only hears one side of this extremely skewed narrative that is being pushed by socialists and progressives. Up until the 1930s in the United States, you really did have freedom of contract. Courts recognized if you made a promise, if consenting adults entered into a voluntary agreement, they would fulfill their promises. Rikers could not just come along and interfere with work and basically uh, extort business owners. One great example of the attitude at this time was in the Lochner case. Now, every first year law student will learn about Lochner versus New York. It was a 1905 case where the Supreme Court of the United States said that New York could not have a statute that uh, set certain work hour limits on their workers. So the Supreme Court of the United States struck down this New York state statute. The rationale they used was. In the 14th Amendment, which I'm a little suspect of, but they talked about freedom to contract. And that's the idea I want to point out is this idea that you're an individual, individualism of self-ownership. And if you make a promise, you keep it. You don't say, oh, I'm going to make a promise, but actually I'm not going to do it because I'm going to have the court bail me out. So this was really the prevalent attitude at the time. Now, since then, of course, that's changed. Uh, in any legal circles, like academia, they scoff at the Lochner case. I mean, you go to a classroom, talk to a law, law professor, and they act like it's the worst decision ever. <laughs> They're like, oh, freedom of contract because all these people are leftists and they hate the free market. They hate capitalism. They help. They hate self ownership. Lochner case is kind of a big joke to them it's kind of like in athletics if you say oh you Bill Bucknered that it's not a compliment well that's how they look at the Lochner case for Wendell Holmes had a dissent they all praise and worship this dissent Oliver Wendell Holmes is a clown and so is his dissent but that's exactly why they love this guy so much you do have some uh, conservative or libertarian circles where they will say that Lochner was correctly decided I've seen some folks at the Cato Institute do so um and I don't think states should strike down uh, laws between consenting adults uh, in their employment terms, but my I do have an issue that neither side really is going to talk about much, and that's federalism. and that's should the Supreme Court strike down a state labor law? Uh, I say no. I say we have the Tenth Amendment, and, and I while I disagree with that, New York law, I don't think the Supreme Court should be the final arbiter of it, but that's neither here nor there. I just brought the case up to point out what the attitude was at the time, and we're starting to get into the progressive era. By the 1930s, that attitude would be totally shifted because the courts have to uh, balance the bargaining power between the parties. So in 1932, President Hoover signed the Norris-Longardia Act, this outlawed what are called yellow dog contracts or contracts where an employee makes with an employer as terms of his employment where he's not going to be part of a union this is really interesting because again if consenting adults say hey as part of your terms of this contract these are the things you're going to have to do just like hey you're going to have to be here at this time you're going to agree to this wage you're going to wear this uniform If that's part of the contract, fine. If you want to be in a union and they say no, then just go to a different employer who allows unions, right? That would be the free market solution, and that would be the moral solution. But, of course, we have these progressives. Their influence really taking the stronghold in the 1930s. So this is the start of a a very uh, pernicious labor movement. So under this act, unions could not be prosecuted under the Sherman Antitrust Act. And I'm not going to get into the Sherman Antitrust Act, but there's some more uh, awful legislation that should definitely be repealed. Now we're getting into the New Deal with Roosevelt, and we have the Wagner Act. Wagner Act really shook things up. It really gave the unions this power they craved. And it's really, really immoral when you look at it, because basically if a shop says votes and say 51% say, yeah, we're going to be in a union. The other 49% say no. The 49% still have to pay union dues because they they use this principle of a free rider where you're getting the union benefits, but you're not paying the dues. The problem is you're making someone pay for something they don't want. They go to work to make money. They don't go to work to pay to be a part of this union. Now, if people want to pay a part of it, great. That's freedom of association. But this act, it's tyranny because it's forcing someone to engage in something they don't, and pay for a service that they don't want. The Taft Hartley Act of 1947 did cut back on this just a little, and you'll have your progressives and your socialists winding up a storm. It didn't really change a lot, but it gave states the ability to pass right to work legislation. We have that here in Michigan. And that's a good thing. And not only that, again, it goes to federalism. If one state wants right to work and the other doesn't, then fine. Uh, vote with your feet. A lot of, a lot more awful things, uh, mandated in the Wagner Act. For instance, each shop has an exclusive bargaining agent. So rather than having multiple different union representatives or different choices at least to maybe cater to different interests that different people within a shop want, you only have one and they're going to do all the bargaining for you. And you can see how it kind of is building this pyramid scheme where the people on top of the union have all the power over all the employees. And really, they're enriching themselves at the expense of both the employees and the business owner. We take this for granted in the United States, but in Europe and other places, they don't have this exclusive bargaining provision. So it's one of these things, well, this is how he's always done it. This must be how it is. Well, not really, because you can look at other examples where they don't have this. Other part of the Wagner Act is that an employer can't influence elections now of course these are arbitrary terms legislators love that and courts love it even more because then they can make it up whatever they want but if, if an employer said hey are you going to vote for the union or not things like that would be violating the wagner act because it's influencing elections it's also this part of the wagner act that says that employers have to act in good faith very vague uh, legal term that can be used to come after employers on very arbitrary grounds and possibly the worst part of the Wagner Act I know you didn't think it could get worse after the things I just said was that it legalized violence sure your education system has said well uh, these owners had it coming they were exploiting the workers but we know we know there's riots uh, things getting burned people getting their knees bashed in cars destroyed women so there's union violence Basically made it so that you know, and under normal circumstances, you go, you break someone's window in, you would be prosecuted for that. Under these circumstances, you go break your employer's uh, window in as a strike, you're going to have some legal protections. It provides a lot more cushion. And F. A. Hayek, who I do have on my picture back here, said unions are uniquely privileged institutions to which the general rules don't apply. That really sums up how they get away with violence, extortion and this power uh, they, they have to where you're a business owner, but actually your business isn't even ran by you. It's ran by whoever's in charge of the union. Don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with unions or being a part of a union. That's part of freedom of assembly. If you want to get together with a group of people and say, we're going to hold out We're not going to work until the demands are met. That's fine. My issue is when an employer can't hire someone else to fill your place. There's still goods that got to be produced. And this idea that, oh, we're going to go on strike. Now no one else can work. Well, that's tyranny. That's not freedom. If you're good enough to where you can sit out and they'll raise your wage instead of hiring someone else, then do it. Then get the money you earn. But this idea of using violence and using the legal structure which is another form of violence, to get what you want is completely immoral. And it, it just shows uh, this complete backwards ideology pushed by socialists, pushed by progressives, and it, it streams into the education system. And then the general public just thinks, oh, you know, this is fine. Well, it's not fine. And that's what we're here to To really take a chainsaw through these myths and this propaganda Janus case which is a Supreme Court case in 2018 said that in public sector unions these employees wouldn't be required to pay a union fee to be part of I think it's really interesting they only applied this in to public unions but public sector unions are completely immoral now what I said a second ago I was talking about private unions again Freedom of assembly, freedom of association, that's fine. But in a public sector, you're bargaining against taxpayer dollars. So you're not, you're not bargaining with an employer in a free market setting. You're saying, hey, if you don't give us a raise or you don't give us these things we want, but the people they're bargaining with aren't the people paying them, because the taxpayers are paying them. The, the government officials or what have you, that's not their money. If they want to give them a raise, don't skin off their back. It'll be just another uh, promise not kept. Well, that, well, that's nothing. They do that all the time. So it's immoral. And if we have these, quote, public servants who are supposed to be so benevolent and looking out for us, and they're so awesome, why do they need to be unionized in the first place? It's that contradiction in that leftist logic. Well, unions are great and they're looking out for us. Well, you say the same thing about government. So why do they need to oppose each other? It's a little about the history, the morality of it. A lot of the talking points about labor laws, about unions, really stem from Marxist ideology. And I'm not just throwing that term around because Karl Marx had what he called the labor theory of value. Let's take an example. Say I sell a chair. I have three employees each of their labor in making this chair is valued at $10. So under the labor theory of value, that chair is worth $30. Now, if I sell that chair for $40, then that's $10 I've exploited from my employees. Now, that doesn't make any sense, of course, because as the person who had to market this chair, who had to find the employees, had to, you know upkeep the shop who has overhead costs um i'm not taking in any money to pay off those things but marx completely ignores all that and of course there's assumptions on what the value of those employees labor the ten dollar figure is in the first place carl manger who's also on my poster back here he's the founder of the austrian school of economics and eventually i'll put a video about the austrian school i know i've Touched on it a few times and I'm sure you guys would love that. But Carl Manger pretty much just blew to smithereen's uh Marx's labor theory of value. Manger said that value is subjective and he used the water diamond paradox. So why is it that water, which is essential to human life, you can only go you know a few days or a week or whatever without it and survive? It's so cheap. But a diamond, which presumably you don't need to survive, is so expensive. Now, Marx, under his labor theory of value, would say a diamond is so expensive because it's so hard to find um, all the mining that goes into it, all the work. So a diamond is expensive because of the labor that went into it. Manger says, no, no, no. Value is subjective. There is not objective value. When you think about it, if you had... 2000 bottles of water in your house. And I said, here's a bottle of water for a hundred bucks. You'd say, you know, go kick rocks. But if you were stranded on a desert with nothing to drink and you had, uh, say you had a diamond, you had this beautiful diamond. And I said, and this diamond's worth thousands of dollars. And I said, Hey, this one bottle of, you know, Aquafina that I got for 99 cents at the gas station. And then somehow I'm at this Island, but ignore that but I show up you trade me the diamond because that water is necessary to sustain life so value is different in different situations I mean take a second think about things in your own life you may value way more than someone else or there's things that other people value way more than you about an xbox game it's 60 bucks um you really like that game you'll eagerly pay 60 bucks for the new call of duty that's coming out well, how much would someone pay for Call of Duty that doesn't even own an Xbox? Oh, I paid 60 bucks for a game. I can't even play it. That would be a complete waste of money. If you gave it to them for $5, they wouldn't buy it. How eager would you be to buy the new Call of Duty for 5 bucks if you're a big COD player? A lot. But if you don't even have an Xbox to play it, that game is pretty much worthless. So value subjective, Carl Manger blew apart that labor theory of value, unfortunately... A lot of those those ideas or those flawed ideas um, from that labor theory of value kind of have carried into socialist progressive ideology, and it really is a hallmark of a lot of our labor laws. Even though it's not necessarily explicit, it's this whole idea of exploitation, unequal bargaining powers, and it's just ridiculous. And you can see it, it's smashed uh, pretty mightily. What about the costs? of labor laws and labor union activity well the national legal and policy Center said that in the last 50 years 50 trillion dollars in lost productivity has occurred due to labor laws labor union activity It makes sense because you think about strikes you think about picketing you think about things being destroyed and this would go to Bastiat Seen versus unseen but when people aren't working then things aren't being made I mean, it's just like right now with the COVID shutdowns. An economy grows by things being produced. When people are standing outside with a, with a sign or on strike, and then other people who would want to work can't work, that's just killing the economy. And, and then it's going to drive the business owner out. I mean, the repercussions, awful awful era before the progressives took hold when everyone was being exploited and the world was just about to end if not for our glorious and benevolent uh technocratic savers who came in with all this red tape and regulation well let's actually look at it because from 1860 to 1890 there was a 50 percent increase in wages and hardly anyone was a part of a union it was like three percent of people Then from 1890 to 1914, wages increased by another 37%. Imagine if your wages increased by 50% even over 30 years doing the same job. I mean, that would be huge. And all these increases occurred, again, as I said, with minimal union activity and influence. And as opposed to Europe, unions were really taking a hold during this time in Europe and Europe was not seeing this kind of increase in wages. So why did the wages increase? Well, it's exactly why life gets better. Quality of life gets better from capital, not from labor. The leftists love praising labor, but it's capital that makes life better. The weekend, the 40-hour work week, the opportunities you might've had on Labor Day, vacation time, benefits, those haven't come about from strikes, from violence, and from stupid FDR-type legislation. These have come from capital. Because what happens is, as an economy gets more capital, as wealth grows, quality of life gets better, opportunities increase. So let me give you an example. You go to a third-world country, a country in poverty, you go to someone who's working seven days a week, uh, awful long hours, you know, no vacations, hardly any days off. Uh, the exact thing they said things would be like here in the United States if not for these progressive policies, right? And you say, hey, look, what if you could have a, five, a five-day work week, but you weren't going to get paid those two days? Well, they'd say no, and, and, and these leftists might scratch their heads. Why don't you want the days off? Because they need the money. They want the money. They want the extra money to pay for things they need. And and that's how exactly it would be here today if we had less capital, if we had a worse economy. You get to a point where you have enough money and then you want to do other things. Look at people as they get older. They have enough money saved up. They want to go to Florida. They want to retire. They don't need more money. They don't want to spend their whole life working. So that's why a lot of times people are younger, they're grinding, they're out here working, they're saving money, they're being smart, then they get older, Other, they have enough money, they have enough money, they're happy with their quality of life, they want to do some other things, they want to go on vacation, they want to, uh, you know, they got a bucket list. So as an economy improves, whether it's an individual's economy or, or a larger scale economy, then those other things start to matter. Then your vacation matters. Then you want time off. Then you want to do other things. But first things first, you got to make the money to pay for the things you need and the things you want. So it's all about needs. Once again, it kind of comes back to subjective value. But the takeaway is the more wealth an individual economy or a larger economy accumulates, less more money is going to matter to them. And the more things like vacation, health benefits, and uh, things like that are gonna come into play. So, hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, it's great to hear the other side of the labor story because you really, rarely ever hear it. And if you liked it, you want your friends to know the truth about labor, then like this, share it, subscribe. Uh, we're on every place you get your podcast. We're on YouTube. It would really mean a lot to help us keep the lights on. And with that being said, I am so excited about Thursday's episode of uh, gonna go after one of the golden calves and uh make sure to tune in. Hey, have a great week. It's a short one and um be glad you're not an eight year old working a hundred hours in a week in a sweatshop.